In this episode, we're talking about the redevelopment and remediation of brownfield sites, specifically those that are highly contaminated. We'll also discuss bringing clarity to these large and complex problems and what happens when that clarity becomes muddied. Hi and welcome. Buckle up for a new episode of Beyond the Green Line, the only podcast hooking you up for a virtual coffee date with some of the leading change makers, industry experts, and everyday activists in environmental and agricultural sciences. So pop in your headphones, go for a walk, and get ready for inspiration, ideas, insights, and real life stories beyond the green line we balance along. Hello and welcome to this episode of Beyond the Green Line. I'm your host, Chanel gleason Willie. Our guest today is Ian Brookman, General Manager for Strategy and Development, Environmental Services at Ventia, and past president and honorary lifetime member of the Australasian Land and Groundwater Association. Hi, Ian. It's really lovely to chat with you again. Hi, Chanel, and lovely to chat with you too. And thank you for having me and and congratulations on the podcast as well. I've listened to quite a few of the episodes and you've got, you've had some fantastic guests and some really interesting topics and it's a really great initiative. So well done. Thank you so much, Ian, for your compliments about the podcast. We were actually chatting before we started recording today about some of the great guests we've had on in the past and how we've had some really passionate and inspiring people. So looking forward to adding you to the list today. Good stuff. So Ian, you actually started your career as a geologist. Now, I'm really interested to find out how you actually um, found yourself where you are now, because uh, my youngest brother is also a geologist and has gone in a very different direction. So how did you find your way into contaminated land management and remediation? It's a good question. I mean, I found myself, you know, in the environment space of, you know, in the environmental space, which I work in now, really because, you know, as, as a small child, when I was young, I was really passionate about natural history. I kind of wanted to be David Attenborough. I wrote to him quite a lot and wanted to go on expeditions with him. Did he write back you know, to you? Yeah, he didn't, unfortunately. <laughs> uh, but I actually was supposed to meet him once and ended up having a, a tooth problem and having to go to the dentist the last minute. And, oh, no. uh, my mum went off and met him and he signed me a book, which was which was fantastic. His first book, Life on Earth. So, you know, so I was, I was pretty happy about that. But I, I've kind of always had a passion for the environment, always wanted to be sort of outside and in it and, and just really enjoy sort of very diverse environments. So when it came to sort of university and I was looking at courses to study, geology seemed very natural. It seemed like the right fit for me. I actually studied geology at school, which was one of the few schools that kind of offered it. So I'd already sort of got a bit of a head start. Did geology uh, partway through the, the degree they offered up an environmental stream, you know, environmental earth sciences, it was called. So I jumped onto that and focused on that and then completed the degree. And then I was looking at, you know, what the, the, the range of roles a geologist could do and clearly mining and sort of exploration, you know, a big focus areas. There wasn't obviously that sort of market in the UK. Uh, well, there, there's some, but not, uh, not, not as much as, say, Australia. Yeah. And so I, I kind of decided to travel. You know, I wanted to see the, see the world, see some of those environments I'd studied. 
and you know just just sort of you know before I sort of settled into a career so I, I sort of waved goodbye to the family and said I'd be back in a couple of years and headed off to you know through to the states and to the Caribbean and then into Australia and my plan was to overland home from Australia and uh, so my ticket my sort of round the world ticket was only halfway round it actually finished in Australia from a from a plane travel standpoint and I had a year working visa in Australia and the idea was to, to work here and then travel back and I ended up staying and I'm, I'm sort of here 20, what am I now, 27 years later. Yeah, right. So at that, at that point, was that when you decided to deviate, I guess, from that traditional career path for a geologist? Is it, was it in Australia that you did that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and uh, you know, I sort of... You know, I, I don't know whether it was a deviation. I just, I, I was probably just not sure what to do with the geology degree per se. I mean, I knew the mining sector and, you know, I was always planning to sort of go across the, you know, to sort of Kalgoorlie and those areas and sort of, you know, get into work there and, and probably sort of start from there. But, you know, as it happened and like most things in life, you sort of don't follow a, a linear path. And so I bounced around on the East Coast of Australia for a while. I did a lot of random jobs, just enjoying the travel aspect. Mm-hmm. So I traveled with the the show. I did work to the, the, Royal, Easter, the Royal Easter show at, in Sydney selling show bags. Oh, you're a carny. Uh, yeah, there's a, show, a showy they call it. Oh, a showy, okay. A showy. So I did that and I actually travelled all the way up through New South Wales and Queensland and outback Queensland and, you know, selling show bags to kids. And so which was which was, you know, fantastic fun. I met a girl, you know, sort of she was from Melbourne. I kind of came back down to Melbourne, sort of found some work in Melbourne for a while, just again, you know, sort of landscaping and bar work and that type of thing. And then I ended up meeting a guy who was was working for an environmental consultancy for a, a company that was based in Sydney, but they were looking to start up an office in Victoria, uh, in Melbourne. And so I met this guy, Richard Campbell, his name, and uh, uh, he offered me a, a part-time role to uh, you know, pretty much help him establish the business. And that was really focused on contaminated land. And it wasn't something I actually had a, a strong knowledge of. We did a bit of it at a university and Obviously, I had a focus on sort of environmental impacts of, you know, sort of anthropogenic impacts, but nothing sort of too extensive. So it was a bit of a learning curve early days. I did a lot of work working on sort of drill rigs and drilling holes in petrol stations and landfills and other contaminated sites. And And are we talking about early 2000s now? Yeah, yes, yes, we are. 1998, I think I started my career. So you've moved um, on from there, obviously, to your current role. And what does your your current role involve? I'm sort of, I, I see myself probably as a bit of a translator, I think. I mean, between uh, a client with uh, a complex environmental problem and a team and a broad industry of experts with, you know, potential solutions, it's trying to really I focus on trying to obviously grow the the Ventia business and the environmental services that we offer and the, the remediation projects that we deliver. So, you know, kind of identify which which of those projects are out there, when when are they going to come to sort of market and, and how we can help those clients with those problems. But you know, the problems are very sort of diverse and 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 quite complex in 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 what they they're required to be delivered. It can be anything from civil engineering to process engineering, environmental, you know, management issues around the site, community engagements, 
you know, there's a lot of sort of factors to to all bring together to be able to deliver a successful project. And I, I find that I spend a lot of time working with clients to understand what their problem is, feed that back to the team in general, and then sort of really work with the client to develop a solution that can be implemented successfully. So I guess, would you say that a lot of your solutions are quite bespoke then, and you do look at a lot of new technologies? Yes, yes, we do. So, uh, yeah, every site is different. It's an environmental system we're dealing with. So, you know, we've, we're working currently in the middle of Kakadu. We've just started work on a, a uranium mine in Kakadu that's, that's going through closure. You know, so obviously a very sensitive environment, you know, a lot of stakeholder engagement, traditional owner. Hmm. engagement required there but then complex in the actual sort of engineering and delivery that's required requiring sort of you know different technologies or applications to address the issues that we're dealing with so we do look at um you know different technologies for different problems depending on whether we're treating chemicals in soil or water and what we need to do to to actually sort of to treat those chemicals, whether it's a, a biological system, whether it's a thermal approach, you know, it can be a physical, you know, or a chemical kind of solution. So we're always looking at sort of new technologies. As a as a contractor, we kind of like to talk to our clients and talk about the idea that we we have all the tools in the toolbox, depending on what they what the problem is that they have. And what types of new or emerging technologies or, or methods, like new methods, have you been able to investigate? and potentially use in your career uh, to help your clients? Well, the, the one I've been mostly focused on in the past sort of six, seven years really has been around PFAS. I'm not sure if your you know, listeners are, are aware of PFAS, but per and polyfluoroalkyl substances. So they're a, a fluorine chemistry, basically, that's, that's a man-made, you know, a chemical family. They're very ubiquitous now in the environment through a lot of different uses. Predominantly, or one of the major uses we're, we're, we're sort of focused on is, is the use of them, these chemicals in firefighting foams. These foams have been used, obviously, in quite large volumes, both in training and in actual fire situations across uh, you know, many sites at airports, refineries, mine sites, you know, defense bases. The chemicals themselves are very persistent in the environment. They're sort of been nicknamed forever chemicals. You find them in, you know, a large percentage of the you know, human population blood. So we already kind of have them in our in our bodies and in our systems and, and across, you know, across the environment generally. So these is the, the PFAS family, you know, it's been an issue in Australia or it's sort of emerged or as a group of contaminants around about sort of 2013, 2012, 2013. And Venti has been quite focused on how can we remove PFAS from the environment, particularly from soils. Uh, they bind very strongly in soils and can contribute sort of to, you know, from, from a soil source area into groundwater and then spread quite, quite far and wide in the groundwater. So we've developed technology to, to effectively take the PFAS from the soil through a, a modified soil washing approach. So what we're trying to do is really reduce, treat the soil areas, reduce the volume of the, of the PFAS in that area through removing it from, from the source soils by washing, ending up with a concentrated chemical mass and then a clean soil 
that can be reused back on site. Mm. And this is called Source Zone, this new technology, right. yeah, that your team's developed with um, with Ventia. Can you tell me more about the process of how it's used to remove, I think it's up to, was it 99% of PFAS mass from soil? Yeah, take me through that. Yeah, sure. It's, it's at the moment, it's, it's quite a large plant we, we have. Um, we're working with, with Commonwealth clients to work on, on these source areas at their sites. So where the fire trainings occurred, where there's been sort of releases of these foams, you get quite high concentrations of PFAS. What we do is we excavate the material. We take it into the plants. Basically, it's a physiochemical process. So what we're actually doing is we're separating the soil into its fractions, whether it's sands, silts, gravels, and the organic fraction within the soil. So we're basically splitting the soil you know, into its fractions through a variety of different means, density, um, separators, and, and scrubbers and the like. And then what we're doing is we're treating the water at every phase. So we're transferring the the PFAS from the soil particles and the soil fraction into the water phase. And then we're we're treating the water through a a variety of resins and activated carbon to to capture the PFAS in the water stream. And we do that at each sort of stage of the process. And what you end up with is, is the clean fractions of the soil which we can then obviously give give back to our clients as a recreated as a soil and it can go back into you know to be reused on the sites then saving it going to landfill or you know to to other areas so it's it, the, the technology itself from a an application soil washing is is very much you know it's a mineral processing type of technology that it's used in a lot of mining applications you know around the world and what we've done is we've 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 modified it we've engineered it so we can actually manage the pfas issue throughout the process we've patented that that process as well so it's a world's first in in that regard and what happens with the water at the end so the water is is cleaned through a water treatment process so uh, the water treatment, PFAS water treatment is, is quite an uh, established sort of science these days. You know, we, there's, there's quite large volumes of water being cleaned around the planet for PFAS. So the technology is, you know, it's quite a adaptable. Technology is quite adaptable for back-end water treatment. So basically what happens is that the PFAS is put, you know, goes into the water stream. The water is cleaned through resin and, and other media which basically strips the PFAS off, you end up with a very small volume of PFAS waste. And what we're doing with that is that we're, we're taking that to a thermal treatment facility that we run down, down in Melbourne, a, a facility called Earthshore, and we're putting the PFAS into a thermal destruction process where it actually destroys the chemicals. Mm, okay. And this Earthshore is actually a Ventia joint venture with um, Suez or now Veolia. Which has established a sorry the soil treatment facility in Victoria that you spoke about. The facility is licensed to accept the and treat category A, B, and C reportable priority waste in Victoria, including PFAS. So, can you tell me how this facility can help with sustainable solutions in a circular economy? Sure, it's the the facility has been something that we've been working on for for quite some time as well, and the idea, and and it's something that's sort of. 
it's building around the country. Uh, Victoria's probably let the charge in many ways with with establishing these types of facilities. There's there's a number in Victoria. They're starting to to emerge in New South Wales and and you know we'll, we'll see them in other states. You know over the next few years, I'm sure. But really, you're talking about you know quite large volumes of soil go to landfill. You know, Australia, I think, obviously, is such a big country. You know, many people sort of just assume that there's so much space that, well, just dig it up and take take the problem somewhere else. And, you know, we certainly do seem to have that sort of dig and dump mentality, you know, and, and, and major projects and large sort of urban renewal projects where, you know, there's basements for, for car parking. You know, you do need to move the soil away from the site. But really putting soil from one hole in the ground into another hole in the ground is, is, is not entirely sustainable. You know, we're taking up quite a lot of landfill space, you know, with soil, which not, doesn't necessarily need to be there. So what we're trying to do is look at a, a way of establishing a facility like we've done, uh, take the soils, clean soil, you know, treat them through a variety of different treatment methods. We've got a, a thermal treatment facility. At Earthshore, we've got the ability to immobilize heavy metals in soils. You know, we're looking at, you know, you know, other treatment methodologies down there. And the idea then really is that you can treat the soil, clean the soil and put the soil back into a, a, what they call a beneficial reuse. You know, it can be reused again in landscape settings. It can be reused, you know, in sort of noise mounds along freeways or, you know, even in just, you know, into sort of clean fill sites where soil's required. Mm. So you're actually sort of just trying to bring a bit more circularity to the whole process rather than it just being the airspace of a, a landfill filled up with, with effectively soil when we do generate a lot of other wastes you know, getting a new landfill license is, is, is challenging. No one wants a landfill near their house. So, you know, why would you fill up uh, an existing landfill with soil when you've probably got other kind of other waste that you probably want to kind of dispose there? And soil is so important in Australia, particularly our topsoils. And I'm guessing when we're talking about PFAS contamination from firefighting from a lot of that would potentially be topsoils that were actually dealing with. So at the end of the process, does does the soil need a lot of inputs um, to help it become a growing media again? Like is it does it become quite sterile through the process? Not not so much in the soil washing process. You know, we, we do strip out uh, a lot of the organic matter and the PFAS does tend to to bind to organic matter so that you know you are targeting that to to get it out there. But you you know adding organics back into the soils, not, you know, not uh, particularly challenging. We can, we can effectively, you know, recreate any soil you like in a way, you know, that, you know, because what you've done is you've taken it down to those fractions. So depending on the soil types, you know, around the country, you know, the site we're working on in South Australia is quite heavily, heavy clays, you know, so our removal efficiency for the PFAS is, you know, is, 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 is reduced with clay. Obviously, it's a lot higher with sands. So it, it depends on, um, you know, the, the soil type that we start with and then what, what the client needs at the back end of it and where the soils are going back to. But from a, a sort of a, a biological standpoint, you can kind of recreate that soil. Thermal treatment's slightly different. You know, obviously, once you've done a high temperature thermal on, on soils and we, we treat soil in a sort of, you know, anywhere sort of three to 500 degrees C to, 
to actually drive the, the contamination from the soil into the gas phase and then treat, treat it as a gas issue. Then the soil comes out the side clean. It, again, it's sterilized because of the heat. But again, you can rebuild those soils. They're probably better from a geotechnical standpoint than they are from a, a, a growth medium, though. Mm. In your time at Ventia, you and your team have won some really prestigious awards quite recently. Do you have a favorite project that has um, won an award recently? I look back on a lot of the projects we've delivered and, you know, I'm very proud of the work we've done and the team's delivered. We certainly, as I say, we, we've worked on some very challenging projects and it's been great to get recognition externally, you know, with awards. We've, we've picked up some awards recently for the work that we did at Kendall Bay and that, that project's I've been involved with since around 2010. So it was great to see it sort of finally completed. It's sort of, uh, you know, it's uh, it's been a long road there, but that was the remediation of contaminated sediments in Sydney Harbour. We actually posed an in-situ capping approach to those sediments and worked on, on the water with with a lot of residential housing around the around the the bay area where we were working and so a lot of residents you know with with a keen focus on the work that we were doing and that was pretty much a, a, a world's first we there was a project in the u.s where there'd been a trial on this methodology but not not sort of taken through to full scale yet and we sort of took the idea did the trial and then actually delivered it at a, at a full scale and that's won a number of project management awards so i was i was very proud of the team you know, f- for that particular project. As a favorite project, it's a tricky one. I, there's there's a project in the Northern Territory that we did at a place called the Cox Peninsula. I think that's probably got a sort of, a, you know, kind of a, a strong hold in my, in my heart. We worked pretty hard to secure the projects with the Commonwealth government. Fundamentally, the the project involved remediation of a, an old antenna station that had a mix of contaminants from PCBs to organopesticides where they'd applied sort of insecticides underneath the slabs to stop termite issues over the years, asbestos, heavy metals. And we ended up, you know, with a small thermal treatment plants, doing some heavy metal immobilization for lead, as well as, you know, creating a, an on-site cell containment cell for asbestos and all of that work uh, facilitated the the settlement of one of the longest running land claims in Australia the Kenby land claim mm-hmm. so that was that was you know fantastic to be a part of you could see the sort of passion from the traditional owners about sort of you know settling this claim um, Malcolm Turnbull the PM at the time sort of handed the deeds sort of back to the traditional owners and we were there for that and so it was a, it was a nice project to be part of because of the sort of closure, you know, of the site and what it meant to people. Yeah. And I guess being able to see the bigger picture and the bigger impact of the work you do, uh, that's always a nice thing to see. Yeah, absolutely. You know, some projects, you know, we, we're sort of just, you know, they're, you know, urban renewal. You can see that what once was a, sort of a, an underutilized part of a, a city or, you know, an area is now sort of a you know, some kind of thriving economy, whether it's residential or some sort of, you know, new urban precinct, you know, and that's, that's great to see that, but it's, it's sort of, you know, it's, it's a bit more sort of structural in a way, whereas, you know, the, the, the Cox Peninsula and actually what the land meant to the traditional owners 
sort of a really, it really resonated with me. Hmm. So what's next for your team? We're working on a project in Kakadu. We're just starting on that now. That's probably got quite a, a, a long way to go. It will take quite a few years. It's a very large project. And again, sort of, you know, the eyes of the world are sort of on it for the, the location that it's in, the fact that it was, you know, a uranium, a former uranium mine. So, you know, I think it's, there'll be a lot of learning from that, uh, that project. And we sort of, we, you know, we're very keen to sort of get involved and, and, and help that project, you know, sort of come to life. So we're looking at that one. We're, we're very much focused on the sort of the energy transition. You know, we've sort of, uh, we can see that the, the closure of the coal power stations, we're, we're working on a couple of those projects. Um, and, and we're starting to see, you know, that sort of energy transition across the country and what that means for sort of remediation and, and decommissioning and cleanup. You know, we've we've done a lot of gas works historically and remediated probably sort of 20, 23 or 24 gas works sites across the country, probably the, the bulk of, you know, the large gas works projects, Ventier and uh, Teese formerly has, have completed those. And that was the sort of an energy, that was the energy source from the 1850s to the 1950s. So you sort of had that, you know, the gas was created by effectively cracking coal, heating coal in ovens and, and driving the gas out of the coal and using the gas to for street lights and heating and, you know, those kind of issues. So that was a, a sort of an energy type, you know, that, that, that sort of fed off the back of the industrial revolution and, and helped, you know, our society grow. And we spent a lot of time cleaning that, the legacy of those up. And now we're still moving into you know, coal-powered stations, and we're seeing a lot of work around the oil and gas sector, decommissioning on and offshore wells, as well as obviously fracking sites that that have been developed that obviously now need cleanup. So we're sort of seeing this energy transition piece still flowing through for our, our industry. There's 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 always something to clean up. It's a very, very cyclical, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, it is, absolutely. <laughs> the next new thing will be our legacy in another, I don't know, 100 years' time. For cleanup. Yep. That's right. And, you know, it's obviously I'm, I'm sort of, uh, you know, I'm looking into, you know, the, 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 what might be the legacy of, you know, renewables, you know, it's sort of, you know, we're all moving into that at a, at a rapid pace, which is fantastic to see and obviously so important, but we've still got to kind of approach these things and make sure that we're, we're starting them with, with an end in mind and, and an understanding of the waste that we generate through all these different waste streams and where they end up. Mm. You know, how are we managing them? We've, I think we're very good at turning a blind eye to our own wastes. And, you know, that's to the detriment of the environment generally. And then, of course, you know, you have these issues, you know, that, that come around as a legacy site. And what might be a waste dump that's far away from population nowadays? And everyone goes, that's great. Dump it out the back there. You know, in 30 years, there could be a housing estate next to it. And that could, those ways could be impacting, you know, human health in that location. Hmm. So when looking at the bigger picture, as we've been talking about, you mentioned that your expertise is in breaking down the big complex problems for clarity and focus. Can you run me through how you go about doing that? Sure. It's, it's, it's very different with each client and each problem, but you know, the, the challenges is, 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 is invariably that someone has an environmental problem of some kind. How well defined that problem is, is, is often challenging. You know, it's, it's, 
to do a lot of investigation around a large brownfield site or a precinct or a mine or a power station is obviously, you know, very costly and it's, you know, often done over many years. So the information can be disconnected. It can be done by different companies over time. You know, information can be in different reporting formats or in different locations. So, you know, bringing all of that together, you know, developing a bit of a, a remediation plan is often done sort of by consultants. And then the consultants tend to pass that through into the client and the client looks to out to the market to companies like Ventia to, to take on the contracting of the, the, the solution delivery. Mm-hmm. The, the risks that we see and the, the issues that we need to address to be able to sort of deliver a solution often aren't addressed as part of those investigations, early investigations. So there's, there's a piece around sort of data gaps and, you know, lack of information uh, or problem definition that we need to, to develop. And often uh, in some instances, clients are quite well advanced down a path where they sort of think they've got the full solution and all they need to do is go and sort of engage a company to do that. And, you know, we might then sort of talk to them and say, look, you know, you're actually not at the point you think you are. You still got, we're going to need more information. So you've got to sort of manage the time expectations around some of these projects and how they're, you know, how they're, they're addressed. There's also budget issues, you know, sometimes a budget's been thrown out very early on a project with, with sort of limited information, but a, a ballpark estimate's been generated and then everyone sort of hangs their hat on that ballpark estimate, you know, even up to sort of board level and, you know, sort of corporate reporting. And then of course, when you get into the nitty gritty of actually delivering the job and all the other sort of facets that might come with the, the delivery of it, whether that's community engagement and management approvals, permits, the actual sort of civil environmental engineering complexities of, of delivery as well. And suddenly the budgets, you know, is different. So you've got mm-hmm. to manage that as well. So, you know, we, we like to try and work with clients very early on. Once they're starting down that path, start to give them a, a view of what that sort of end result looks like. You know, other projects that, that have been delivered that might be similar or offer a similar view to them. You know, it's a very sort of educational type process to bring them up to speed in what they're actually dealing with. Uh, some clients obviously are highly educated in the space. You know, they're chemical companies, the, you know, the, the oil and gas companies, they kind of know what they're sort of dealing with, but, you know, other clients such as government agencies where obviously sort of remediation is not a core business for them and project teams are formed from across agencies to, to try and deliver something. It might not be something that they actually have a lot of experience doing. So you're sort of really trying to get them to understand what they sort of, what they don't know and what they need to know. And then really frame the project the right way. Remediation projects are notoriously risky and there's been a lot of, you know, a lot of, you know, problematic problems around the country and around the world. And a lot of things where, you know, you know, people have ended up being quite heavily impacted by it. So you've got to sort of make sure that you're, you're really setting yourself up for success from the very outset and, and really focusing on that mm-hmm. uh, and working, you know, with very sort of broad disciplined teams both within Ventia and external external subcontracts and advisors, the, the regulators, and then the client really trying to bring it all together early on, 
picture the end result and then sort of work towards that successful outcome. Yeah. And these teams that you've just described, they would have, the people in these teams would have competing priorities, differences of opinion based on their own expertise and definitely on personalities, which is something that I've learned a lot about recently. (laughs) (laughs) In, In your opinion, what's the best way to bring all these people together as a team and work towards that common goal that you've mentioned? Oh, well, I, I'm a firm believer in trying to put myself in other people's shoes and sort of see see the 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 challenge or the opportunity through their eyes. So I I I really do try and apply that as as much as I can and sort of think, well, what do they want out of this process and what are they trying to achieve? You know, I mean, you could be very base and say that it's always just about everyone making some money or, you know, it's an economic driver is is fundamental. But, you know, people do have, you know, a kind of a broad range of drivers themselves, personal and professionally. And, you know, you've got to sort of try and recognize those, you know, make sure that that view is seen and recognized uh, and, and addressed and then really try and sort of show, show everyone what success looks like to them. You know, not just about the project, a successful project, but what will you get out of that? You know, because of, you know, because of that success, mm. you know, how does, you know, why should we try and all work together in that right, in that kind of way to, to get the outcome we need? It's not just about sort of ticking a box or, you know, completing another project or, you know, just achieving something for a client, but what do you get out of it as well? So, you know, I, I really try and do that throughout on the on the larger complex projects really try and work with with the team as a, as as a, as a whole and, and understand those drivers so what happens when we lose focus on the bigger picture well i think what what happens is that either projects aren't delivered they're either not delivered at all or they're delivered badly or late or you know potentially un- unsafely as well. Obviously, you know, there's a lot of, in, in my industry and with, with some of the projects we do, there, there there's some huge risks that you need to be addressed. And we engineer, you know, you know we have a, a safety and design approach and, and really kind of focus on engineering out, you know, safety risks. But that, that's, a, that's a big challenge. So if you don't sort of, you know, if if you don't get it right from the outcome, you know, litigation is another, you know, big, big um, spectre that looms on the horizon. You know, there's certainly been some some sites that, that haven't gone well, you know, ended up very acrimoniously with, uh, you know, with clients and contractors and consultants and, you know, other stakeholders all pointing fingers at each other. And, you know, there's there's class actions running around the country around different issues, whether it's PFAS or asbestos. There's communities that can be impacted by, by, you know, projects that aren't managed well, whether that's, you know, adjacent to a former smelter or, you know, you know, areas where, you know, they kind of, you know, they've just not been consulted well or the regulators sort of missed, missed something. So, you know, it does impact people in many different ways. And I just think it's just important to try and get it right as, as, you know, as best you can from the outset, really. Yeah, so, yeah. yeah. It's like everything else, really. It's, in life, that's right, it? it's, not life. Just, it's just not projects. Yeah. <laughs> so in that regard to getting it right, is there one project that stands out in your mind as your personal best achievement in this regard? Cool. 
Big question. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I'm just going to think about, you know, all the projects. As I say, we sort of, they're so all diverse and we've done so many over the years that they've all had, you know, all had highlights for sure. I certainly think the Cox Peninsula was, was, was definitely one that, you know, it was important for why it was being delivered. It was, you know, the, the, all the project teams from the client to the client's consultants to our subcontractors to, you know, you know, all the stakeholders came together very well around that. I felt, um, there's been other projects like that, gasworks projects. We've done quite a number, as I say, of, of these old gasworks. We did one down at Wollongong. And I think that was also a fantastic example of sort of collaboration between, you know, the client and ourselves with that. We really looked at the land use of, you know, the future land use of the site and really sort of kind of designed the remediation to, to really meet that future land use. And, that, you know, that, that project was, was great for that facet. Um, I don't know whether I actually have a full, you know, number one standout from them all. You know, I just really enjoy, I really enjoy sort of the diversity of the environments that we work in. And the, and the challenges that those bring, whether it's on Sydney Harbour or, you know, remote, remote, you know, regional communities or, you know, very remote regions. We work with, you know, treating contaminated sediments. We, we treat water, groundwater, soils, obviously. So it's, you know, it's, it's, it's a very diverse kind of field in some ways. I mean, I'm often traveling around the country you know, going to these places and, you know, I talk to my friends and they say, oh, it's fantastic. You're going to go up to Darwin and I say, yeah, it is, but I'm off to look at probably some of the worst. Yeah. <laughs> you know, not, I'm not going to look at the best bit of Darwin. I'm going to look at the worst bit of Darwin, you know? So, you know, it's, it's can be confronting in that regard, but, you know, as I say, I, 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 I enjoy all the projects we do. I like the fact that we get the ability to look long-term and, and work with clients on some of the larger, sort of more complex projects. Hmm. And, you know, and, and, the, and the challenges those bring. So you've obviously spent your career to date investigating and remediating legacy soil and water contamination from past human activities. What challenges do you see ahead in the future? Well, I suppose as I, as I touched on earlier, I think it's it's really sort of understanding that the the waste streams and you know the 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 issues that we're going to face with with future wastes. I read an article this morning, which actually I think it's the the stat is is from 2016, so it's 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 sort of you know seven years out of date, but it, it basically said that you know there's a new synthetic chemical created uh, every 1.4 seconds. Mm. So if you kind of think about that, and that was from 2016, you know, the sort of the volume of, you know, chemicals that we're putting into the environment, you know, uh, inadvertently or advertently, you know, is, is, is very challenging. There's, 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 you know, not a lot of these chemicals are regulated you know, we're sort of quite happy to embrace a sort of a wonder product of any kind. And, you know, you know, asbestos would have been an example of that in the past. And, you know, these PFAS chemicals are certainly another, you know, so we're, we're, you know, we're very quick to come out with, with new ways of making our life probably easier or perceived, you know, you know, easier through different ways of convenience. But then we don't sort of really truly see that the wastes, that we're actually generating from the back end and the, and the, and the management and processes that we have around those wastes. 
And I think that's the biggest challenge we have. We're, we've, we've sort of, as, as a species, turned a blind eye to, to what we produce out the back. And it doesn't matter whether it's gases into the climate or chemicals into the grounds. We're, we, we need to get better at managing those. So I think there's going to be some, some, some issues around that. I certainly see microplastics has been a big problem. And that's, that's something that obviously we're, we're currently dealing with now and we'll start to see some more challenges around that. You know, how microplastics will be remediated from the environment, you know, is something, you know, we're, we're starting to consider, but, you know, it's not really, I, I'm not seeing anything happening yet about it. I can see, obviously, we're trying to remove litter from our environment and plastics where we can, but, you know, microplastics are going to be far more challenging and we're, seen them turn up in you know in blood and you know in in you know the stomachs of many creatures and you know it's you know it's 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 a it's a building kind of what would you say a building wave of 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 chemistry that we've we're, we're sort of facing down all the time i guess it's it's quite scary really when you put it you know in that to, you know, that size that what we're looking at with the microplastics, basically we need to filter the entire world at some point. <laughs> well, well that, yeah, that's it. I mean, but, you know, we know that we're not going to filter the world. We know that's, that's, that's unlikely. What we've got to do is just sort of understand, you know, where it's causing sort of the greatest impact. How can we kind of stop generating them at, at a source so we're not actually kind of, you know, creating the volumes of these things anymore? Mm you know, and, and really turn the tap off where we can. And then obviously look at what we can need to do off the, off the sort of the back end, the receptor and understand, you know, what needs to, to be addressed. Where's the sort of high value remedial activities that we can undertake that will actually, you know, you know, have an impact, you know, whether that's on a, you know, on human populations or on, or, or on the natural environment and, and biota generally. So it's, you know, trying to get their heads around that, get get organizations, government agencies, governments generally, you know, to coordinate, I think is 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 gonna be the, the challenge of the future. And you can see bits of it happening here and there through the EU and America and you know, some you know, bits and pieces in Australia. But you know, we probably just need to get a lot more focused on it, make sure that there's there's money applied to it and you know. There's obviously a lot of people working on the challenges, which is the optimistic note to, you know, the scariness of it all. But that's, you know, that's the challenge and that's what we're all doing, I suppose. Well, a lot of us are, aren't we? Yep, certainly. Well, thank you so much for your time, Ian. That wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line. I've loved talking to you. It's been really, really fascinating. So thank you again. Yeah, thank you. And I really appreciate uh, you asking me to come onto your podcast and look forward to hearing more episodes. Sounds great. That wraps up this episode of Beyond the Green Line. Thanks for listening. This has been Chanel Gleason Willie. Thanks for listening to this episode of Beyond the Green Line, brought to you by Moss Environmental. Subscribe to our podcast for your weekly invitation to join the conversation. Until next time, keep thinking green.